You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Some of you know that uh, this congregation is full of ministers, um, the majority of whom uh, used to be ministers in the Church of Scotland. And I witnessed uh, just a few minutes ago something I thought I would never see. And that is one of those ministers, anxious that the offering had not yet been collected, holding up what I looked like a 500-pound note uh, in the direction of our minister, David Robertson, uh, who completely ignored it, uh, I think as a reminder to him that the offering should be taken. So, David is so organized, I assume that uh, he was leaving that right to the end of the service this evening. It's, uh, it's always a good thing to have ministers in the congregation. Now, our scripture reading this evening is from the New Testament, and you will find it, I scarcely need to give this number, but it's actually on page 900 and 6345, 965, which is one of the pages in the Bible that doesn't have a number. And those of you who know about the idiosyncrasies of publishing know that the reason for that is because it's the first page in a book. And uh, some strange reason, uh, printers do not put the page number on the first page in a book. So, this is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 to 17. And just in case you think that's a strange reading, uh, I remind myself, as I remind you, that uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and all Scripture, Paul tells us, is useful for teaching and uh, for Uh, rebuking and for correcting and for training in righteousness. And uh, I hope that we will be able to see that here in Matthew chapter 1. So, let's hear God's Word. Matthew 1 verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nation. Nation, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. So, what's the first thing you do in preparing for Christmas? If you're sensible, the first thing you do is make a Christmas list. And your Christmas list should have at the top what? Christmas list. You probably don't think about it when you're doing that, but that is one of the elementary principles of Aristotelian logic that you begin with the end. And if you begin with the end, then everything you do between the beginning and the end moves towards the goal. It's actually a very interesting principle that uh, it is the last thing you want to accomplish that is the first thing that you should think about in order to accomplish it well. And that, I think, is the reason why the New Testament and Matthew's gospel, Matthew didn't know it when he was writing his gospel. He didn't know that this would be the first page of the New Testament. But in the providence of God, it's interesting, isn't it, that the New Testament begins with what we might call God's Christmas list. And it's interesting that uh, if Aristotle was a wise man, then God was wiser than Aristotle because Matthew's gospel opens this genealogy, begins, it's the story that goes back uh, through many centuries to Abraham, but it begins with the destination point. This is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. In my experience, this is not a passage to which we frequently turn at Christmas time, either personally in our own Bible reading or in church when we have readings of uh, various parts of Scripture or in sermons. And there are probably two reasons for that. Who wants to read all these names? You're bound to get one or other of them wrong or mix them up, or something like that, and we're always a little nervous about pronouncing so many foreigners' names. And the other thing I think we probably feel is, surely there's a more interesting way to begin a biography. I read a fair number of biographies, and the ones that I tend to run quickly through the first chapter are invariably the ones 
that begin by telling you the family tree of the person about whom the biography has been written. That, of course, is worse when it comes to Russian biographies because everybody is Evich of Evich of Evich. But even in names with which we're familiar, it can be, can be just very discombobulating and confusing to, to try and hold all these names and all these connections together and all these cousins and relationships to famous people. When uh, you kind of feel by the time you got to page 10, it would have been better by telling me something interesting at the beginning. That would have got me into the biography. And so you might think that uh, of the four gospel writers, Matthew was the poorest biographer until you remembered that the gospels are not biographies. They're clearly not biographies. In each case, somewhere between a third and a half is focused on one week of the character of the book's life, the last week of Jesus' ministry. They're not biographies because uh, only one of them tells you anything about Jesus between the age of two or three and the age of thirty. They're clearly not biographies. They're gospels. They are sermons about Jesus. They're not just telling us the facts. They're explaining to us the significance of Jesus. They're messages about Jesus. And it's fascinating, isn't it, when you think about it, that although the first three gospels in particular seem pretty much the same, Every single one of the Gospels has a beginning, a beginning that's very different from the other three. Uh, Matthew begins with a family tree. Mark essentially begins with the ministry of John the Baptist 30 years later. Luke begins, of course, with the, with the infancy of Jesus, and he holds off the family tree of Jesus to chapter 4. And John, of course, soars in his introduction, and his gospel begins not in time, but in eternity. And the, the, the gospels, in a sense, are no more different from one another than they are in the way in which they open. And each gospel writer, in the way in which he opens the gospel, is giving us an indication. This is like the overture to an opera, giving us an indication of the themes that are going to be worked out right through the gospel. And that's exactly what Matthew does in these opening words, doesn't he? This is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So, what do we need to know about Jesus Christ? Number one, He is the promised Son of David. Number two, He is the promised seed of Abraham. Number one, He is the promised Son of David, and therefore in Him we should expect to see the prophecies about that Son fulfilled, that He would establish a kingdom that would cover the whole earth, and the nations would come to Him. 
and he is the seed of Abraham. And God had promised, you remember, to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. That is why uh, by the time we have turned a page or so in our Gospels, we have people coming, as it were, from the east, from the nations, from among the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, coming to Jesus as the King. That's why Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus saying to the apostles, now through you, because of me, the promise given to Abram is going to be fulfilled. Go into all the world and preach the good news. Because in Abraham's seed, that is in myself, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so, there's a real significance to the fact that Matthew writing this gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ begins with Jesus' family tree. Now, I know you're all sitting there thinking, I hope he's going to go through this verse by verse, name by name. But uh, I'm only pulling your leg. I'm sure no one is thinking that. And it's Christmas time, and we're tired. And it's not even Christmas time, and we're tired. And what I want to do is to suggest that we, that we come to this passage and we ask this question. If in bringing His Son into the world, God works in particular ways, then we should anticipate that when God brings His Son by His Spirit into our lives, God will also work in very similar ways. There is a sense in which everything becomes plain only in Jesus. I mean, that's true for many of us in our Christian lives, isn't it? When we came to Christ, it seemed as though all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle began to move into place, and, and we saw our place in the universe. We saw that our life had significance. We came to Jesus, John 8 verse 12, the, the text on our Christmas card, which actually was the text through which I came to Christ. He is the light of the world. He is the light of the cosmos. And those who follow Him will never walk in darkness, but have that light of life that lightens everything. So that though we don't understand everything and we don't know everything, we do understand and know something about everything. We know that the heart of history is what God has done in Christ. We know that Christ is the answer to our human needs. We know that Christ is the Lord of the universe. And because we have seen the end that God has in view, then we begin to see how our lives fit into the patterns that God uses to bring glory to His Son. If you think about this family tree, it's a story about how God shaped a whole generation after generation of people's lives in relationship to Jesus Christ. And we can anticipate that since He did that 
until the coming of Christ. He will do that among His people until the return of Christ. So, what are some of the general lessons that we learn from this passage? I think actually Matthew gives us a number of clues. The first is this, that there is no unreliability in the promises that God makes. There is no unreliability in the promises that God makes. Matthew begins with these two individuals in Jesus' family tree before he runs through and shows us where they fit in, Abraham on the one hand, David on the other hand. These are the two great figures that God uses in order to bring promises of grace and salvation to His people. Moses actually, from the point of view of the whole Bible, Moses kind of fits in there. Moses Moses brings in a kind of temporary arrangement for a particular people between Abraham and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the two big figures of promise are Abraham on the one hand and David on the other. And if you think about these two figures, then in, in both cases, I think you'll immediately remember something they have in common, that when they received the promises of God, there were times when those promises must have seemed to them to be very unreliable, either because God seemed to be so slow in keeping His promises, that was the case with Abraham, because those promises were contrary to every natural expectation. Uh, When Abraham is told that they are going to have a son, what does Sarah do? She bursts her sides laughing on the other side of the tent. And she's so embarrassed about it that she denies that she was laughing, but she was laughing. You know, there wasn't much insulation, sound insulation in tents. And uh, no wonder she was laughing. You would have been laughing. This age body is good as dead, says Paul about them. And God comes and He gives this promise. He says, you know, the, the, fu- the future of my salvation purposes are going to depend on you two having a boy. It just seemed absolutely ludicrous. Or think about what David did with the promises of God that started off in his life with such extraordinary promise. His many failures. And yet, isn't it striking that what we are learning here from the opening verses of Matthew's gospel is that although God's promises sometimes seem slow in their fulfillment, although God's promises often seem contradicted by the circumstances of our lives, Uh, since we're talking about ministers tonight, David Ellis, I hope won't mind me saying, I've never forgotten him in a sermon when we were in the same church together, commenting on how how often Christians struggle because the promises of God and the providences of God 
seem to contradict each other. But you see, when we stand back and see the big picture, and part of the reason why we get these big pictures in the Scriptures is to help us to believe that when we can't stand back far enough to see the whole big picture, or we can't see into the future to see how God fulfills His promises, there is never, ever any unreliability in the promises of God. Sometimes His promises seem to be overwhelmed by His providences, but His purposes are absolutely certain and His promises reliable. Fifty years ago, actually it was fifty years ago, I was a first-year student at university. Yes, there were universities fifty years ago, and the government gave you money to go to them. Um, uh, In the good old days, I made friends with a a young African student. We we used to have coffee together most days, and uh, I got to know him well enough to ask the kind of question you always want to ask but never dared to ask. And I think he was slightly vain because often combing his hair, you know, and he had a special kind of brush that he would comb his hair with. And I, I said to him one day when I thought, I think our, our friendship can take the strain of this rather personal question. I said, Thomas, it's not really sore when you comb your hair like that. He just burst out laughing. He knew what I was thinking. I was thinking if your hair is all you know, like that, then it's, it's all twisted up. He, he put his, his thumb and his forefinger into his hair. And he just, he got hold of the end of one hair. And then he very, very slowly pulled it out. And he 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 pulled it out. And then I got it. To me, it looked as though his head was a tangled mass of this dark, dark black hair. But every single hair was perfectly ordered. And that's such an illustration of the providence of God, isn't it? In our lives to us, it seems always so tangled, so difficult to see where is God going. And yet every single strand, every single promise in His Word is perfectly in position. Remember how David was able to say that at the end of his life? In 2 Samuel 23, your covenant is well ordered and secure. So, what Matthew is doing here, among other things, he's he's helping us stand back from the whole of the Old Testament story, or at least the whole of the Old Testament minus the first 11 chapters, or the first 10 and a half chapters, or 11 and a half chapters, actually. And he's saying, you know, when you put the coming of Jesus in the big picture, everything was exactly where it needed to be. And if you're Christ's, then the same is true for you also. So, he's teaching us that there is no unreliability in the promises that God makes. The second thing he's teaching us, and he does this actually in a very obvious way, but it's a very fascinating way, 
He teaches us that there is no difficulty in our lives that can halt God's purposes. Indeed, there is no difficulty that we throw up in our lives that can halt God's purposes. Um, Matthew suggests to us that the, the, the family tree of Jesus is very regular, doesn't he? He divides it into three sections, and in each of these sections there are 14 generations. But actually, Matthew is doing something here. This is a literary device. He's missing out some generations. He's, he's gathering some generations together, and he's, he's putting it in this very ordered sequence. Abraham to David, David to the Babylonian exile, Babylonian exile to Jesus, because he wants to paint this picture to us of God who is in absolute control, and everything He does, He does well, and He does in an orderly way. But then when you read it out loud, you see, when you think about what you're reading, there are things that uh, I think if you're, if you're, certainly if you're part of this culture, or sensitive to the literature of the Bible, you think, wow, where did that come from? Everything is ordered, boom, how did that get here? And the, the obvious thing, you know, that, um, you know, even if you've never read this passage before, you might have noticed if you are familiar with Bible genealogies, what, what's the big word in a Bible genealogy, especially if you are brought up in the authorized version? It's full of begats, isn't it? So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's not full of conceiveds. It's full of men, isn't it? This man begat that man and begat that man. The genealogies are all patriarchal because the society was patriarchal. If you were a woman and you married, then you were part of your own family. You were a kind of adjunct of the other family. And then you read this genealogy, and there are four names that stand out, excuse the expression, like sore thumbs, don't they? There are four women in the genealogy here. Well, you don't put women in the genealogy. So that tells us Matthew really wants us to notice these particular points in the genealogy. And he has just one little, it's interesting, he does it all in one little section from verse 3 to verse 6, I think. And you know the names. And if you know your Bible a little, you know the story. In every instance, there's deep sadness in the story. There's the story of Tamar. Uh, in Genesis chapter 38. That's a, that's a, I've never heard that chapter read in church. It is a ghastly chapter. It's, it's the story of a woman whose first two husbands proved to be desperately wicked, who is promised another husband who will give her children, and the promise is never fulfilled. And so, when her father-in-law is bereft, she takes off her mourning clothes and sits at the side of the road as a, 
as a prostitute, and uh, her father-in-law comes and has intercourse with her. And he, he leaves some personal belongings with her. It's a kind of exchange. And then his daughter-in-law is great with child, and he is furious against the man who has caused this until his very shrewd daughter-in-law says, send him these and say, it was the man who gave me these who made me pregnant. It's an appalling story. But you see, it's in Jesus' genealogy. That is to say, uh, it is in Jesus' genes. This woman and this father-in-law, Judah of all men, Judah, the great Judah. It's here. Oh, well, uh, what does this mean? Does this mean we can sin to our heart's content? No, it certainly doesn't mean that. But it means in the economy of God, even our rebellion against Him cannot thwart His purposes. And the next name, the next name is Rahab. Rahab, who, um, she was like one of these women in New York, wasn't she? She was a madam. Rahab the harlot, as Hebrews calls her. And, and she's here in the family tree. And then there's Ruth. Well, Ruth's terrific, isn't she? Yes, she's terrific, but she's a Gentile. And the Moabites were supposed to be, listen to this, they were supposed to be kept out of the community of God's people for generation after generation. And yet somehow this woman gets into the family tree of King David. And then there's a woman who isn't even mentioned by name but she doesn't need to be mentioned by name. Everyone knows what her name is. But she's simply referred to here, isn't she, as the woman who had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite, except the reason why she was no longer the wife of Uriah the Hittite because Uriah was dead was because of what David had done with her before Uriah was dead. And, and she's in there too. Does Matthew have something against women? No, he doesn't have anything against women. But you see the anomaly of putting women into the genealogy of Jesus in a sense is a, you know, even just from a literary point of view, it's a brilliant way of highlighting it and, and kind of causing the electricity to go off in the minds of the readers to say, what's going on here? A, we don't usually have women in the genealogies. This is weird. And then to think, think of the reasons these women are in the genealogy. And whose genealogy is this? This is the genealogy. Remember how John puts it? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is, have you any skeletons, incidentally, in your your family tree. 
I, uh, I have one or two skeletons in my family tree um, that uh, my mother, who was not one of the skeletons, <laughs> incidentally, anyone who knew my mother knew she was never a skeleton, um, that my mother told me about. Um, I visited a relative once in hospital when I was a very young minister in the days when you didn't go into hospitals unless you had the collar on. It was the open sesame to everything, and uh, this relative happened to be in the hospital I was visiting for people in the congregation. Walked into her room, she said, you think I'm a very wicked woman? What? <laughs> no, I don't. No, you do. You think I'm a very wicked woman? I thought she was delirious. It was only many years later on that my mother told me, indeed, she had been a very wicked woman. And it was the, it was the sight of this collar that had touched her, her conscience. You know, most of us have got something in our, something in the family somewhere. This is in Jesus' family. This is the world into which He comes. Remember how, uh, how Hebrews 2 puts it, He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Not ashamed. Think, think of this in glory. Think of what you know about Judah. And think about Jesus coming to him and saying, let's talk together, brother. Think about, think about uh, Ruth, who had lost her husband, lost all future prospects. Not, not fit to be part of the people of God. Come, sister, enter into the joy of the Lord. Think about David. Oh, what a, what a, what a wonderfully gifted individual, and what a mess. And the Lord Jesus embraces him. It's a reassurance to us uh, that for all our failure, remember how Paul puts it in Romans 5.20? He says, do you see that where sin abounded, grace has superabounded? Um, perhaps that's what you need to know. Sin and failure. Uh, perhaps you've been wicked. We've all been wicked. It comes out sometimes in small things, it can come out in large things, it can come out in the way in which we develop an entire habit, it come out in the spasm action of a moment that we regret for the rest of our lives. And we, we need to know that when God moves in His grace, nothing can withstand Him getting to the final destination. It may seem to us to be impossible that that should be the case. But it is amazing, isn't it, that we cannot sin our lives beyond the grace of God unless we sin by persistently refusing the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
And then there's a third lesson. There is no unreliability in the promises that God makes. There is no difficulty that can halt the purposes God has. And thirdly, and this is a beautiful thing that you see in this family tree as well, there is no obscurity that God is not able to employ for His glory. Actually, a good number of the names in this family tree are completely obscure. They're Bible names, of course, so from that point of view, they may, they're Old Testament names. From that point of view, they may seem to be obscure, but they're even obscure in the Old Testament itself, people about whom we know absolutely nothing. I mean, think of the discovery of this for, for some of the people in Jesus' family tree. If it's true that the angels were peering over the the balcony of heaven, pondering what was Jesus doing, longing to understand, longing to get in the inside of what the Master was doing. How much more those for whom He did it, who were, well, they were like the grass of the field that today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven and burnt nothing. Most of us are nothing, aren't we? All of us are nothing in this room. All of us are nothing. Um, absolutely insignificant. Of course, at the end of the day, everybody is kind of insignificant, but among the insignificant, we are really insignificant. Aye. It's in Glasgow the other day. You know, it's my birth city, a city I love, greatest city in the world, and all the rest of it. You walk through the city and think, I don't know anybody here. I'm just a number here. People passing me by, nobody cares. Insignificant. But you see, when, when God means to bring glory to Jesus Christ, He loves to bring the insignificant in as part of His purpose. Yes, there are a few famous names. Actually, most of the famous names messed up. So, in this family tree, you're basically either messed up or insignificant. And the beautiful thing is that our insignificance is is no hindrance to God, is it? Um to bring us into the center of His plan and to show His glory through us. And actually, one of the things this genealogy is doing is this. On what does the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham depend? I mean, this is a promise of the salvation of the world. Where does it end up here? Where does it end up? Or then take David's promised kingdom that will cover the entire earth and into which the nations will press. Where does it end up? It ends up in a cave at the back of an inn in the insignificant city of Bethlehem. That's where the promise to Abram has ended up. You work your way through the generations, Matthew is saying, where is this promise now? And the answer, Mary and Joseph. That's where it is. 
and this glorious promise about the the king who will sit on David's throne and rule over the nations and bring in the benediction promised through Abraham. Where can, where can we find? You know, you know when the Dalai Lama dies, they're always looking for the guy that was kind of born the same moment the Dalai Lama dies, and they're searching all around. Well, we search through Old Testament history, and we try and do our genealogies, and we ask now, who is the heir? Where are they? The answer, well, it's a teenage girl and she's great with child through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's an insignificant but righteous, faithful, covenantly loving Joseph, who is uh, an artisan who helps to build your house and who makes plows and yokes for your oxen, and he's the heir. That's where it's got. It, where has it got? It's got to complete insignificance. But that, of course, is the whole purpose, isn't it? That's what we, we see that illustrated in the Old Testament, but it's stated to us in concrete propositions. God loves to use the insignificant in order to display His significance. God loves to use the nobodies in order to display that He is the somebody who really matters. And if we're caught up into God's purposes, it is exactly the same. What He loves to do is to take the insignificant in order to connect people with the one who is ultimately significant. I mean, Mary and Joseph, they were going to get married, you know, have a family, live their little lives, die their quiet deaths, be faithful to the Lord. The only aspiration, and it's, it's you know, it's, this is really beautifully brought out by by Matthew and by Luke in their knowledge of the Scriptures, their only, their only aspiration was to love the Lord and to look for His salvation. They were just insignificant. And I suppose they had the heartbeat that all of those who belong to the Lord have. They wished that others loved the Lord the way they did. And perhaps they witnessed to others and said, you know, the Savior is coming. And people said, yeah, we know He's coming. He's been coming, for, been coming since the days of Abraham, and He's no nearer now. And they were the ones who made the final connection to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And some of you have been that too, haven't you? I wonder if there's anybody in this room who has been the final connection to Jesus in the life of someone else in this room. But whether that's true or not, somebody was the final connection to you. Maybe it was your mom or your dad, your brother, sister, friend at school, somebody who nursed you, 
somebody who preached the gospel, somebody that you just saw. And when you saw them, first of all, they seemed completely insignificant. They may even have seemed a bit odd, certainly different from other people. But it was through him or her that God was making the final connection. And think about it. You've got a genealogy too. Your genealogy is actually longer than this genealogy. And it's far more complicated. I mean, after all, you might have Irish blood or Italian blood. It doesn't matter what blood you've got in you. Your genealogy is far more complicated than this. It goes way back through all the wanderings of history. Way back. How did those people get to Scotland? Where did they come from? And then a way back, and a way back, and a way back, so that if you get into Doctor Who's TARDIS and keep going back and back and back and back and back and back, you'd end up in the Garden of Eden, wouldn't you? Imagine trying, imagine the sheet of paper that would be needed for you to put in just your little bit of the family tree. so that when you become the last element in the purposes of God that draws someone else to Jesus, that's just been as complicated as this. To get you here at this time, in this place, and for this person, because God delights to use our obscurity. You know the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem? Hey, if you know Calypso carols, you know O Little Town of Bethlehem. Um, There is a line in that that I have long loved. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. That's what this is about. But... uh, That's something that's true of all those who belong to Jesus. That for so many people, the hopes and fears of all the years and all that's needed is for God to bring along the the insignificant person who's going to be the contact. And then Christmas happens, doesn't it? O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. It's such a great message, really. What a brilliant way to start a gospel with all these unpronounceable names. Just the kind of thing God would do, isn't it? To show us His grace through names we can scarcely pronounce. Well, let's look to Him and trust in Him. Believe that if He has kept this promise, then none of His promises will ever fall to the ground in our lives. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the wonder of the coming of our Lord Jesus. We thank You that He came so bathed in grace that Your apostles were able to speak about the grace of God actually appearing 
in him. We were thinking this morning, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. And you've not only made us who are poor rich in Christ, you've made us who are insignificant. You've actually made us the single most significant human being in the spiritual story of others. And that will last for all eternity. They will be in heaven rather than in hell because you took us in all our insignificance and you made us like Mary and Joseph, that last connection to the Lord Jesus. Oh, give us a, give us a security in this. Give us a, a spirit of hope. Encourage us in our failures and the ways we mess up that we may take responsibility and repent and yet know that you are still able to work out your purposes in our lives. And we thank you for, for what is the beginning and end of this story, our Lord Jesus himself. And we thank you that he's going to come again, not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by. We shall see him but in heaven, set at God's right hand, on high, all around, his children crowned, casting our crowns before him. Bring that day, we pray, but in the meantime, help us to rest in and to trust your wonderful promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.